Welcome back to the second half of the episode. How was your break? It was fine, thanks. How was yours? It was just so lovely. Okay, so from the shortness of Breathless, we're now going into the crime drama epic. Yeah. With the two-hour, 20-minute Le Cirque Rouge, which is as different from breathless as well as night is day and claude will give you a sense of that when he gives you the plot description for le cirque rouge indeed and as we like to tie these films together let me note that once again we're starting in marseille and ending in paris so once again we are starting in marseille as we meet a prisoner named Corey, who's played by alain delon uh cory is greeted by a corrections officer who tips him off that he's getting out of prison early in fact the next day. He's been in jail for five years, but he got some time off for uh, good behavior. The corrections officer tips him off about a job in Paris that could conceivably go off without a hitch, but we don't really get the details yet. The next morning, the officers are returning Corey's personal effects, and among them is a trio of photographs, and they're all of the same woman. He leaves them behind at first, but one of the COs calls him back and hands them to him. Corey heads to the home of Rico, played by Andre Ekian. Uh, Rico is a former associate for whom Corey covered during the investigation and trial. Rico offers to give him a huge amount of money as thanks for keeping quiet, but Corey isn't interested in that. He just wants a few thousand francs as a loan. Rico insists he doesn't have any money, but Corey locates Rico's wall safe and has him open it. He takes the money and the gun that are inside the safe, and he leaves behind the photographs because he knows that the woman in those pictures, his former girlfriend, is in the bedroom nearby. Corey then goes to a billiard hall where he's accosted by two of Rico's men. He kills one and knocks out the other and takes their gun. Corey then goes to a used car dealer and he buys the American car that's in there. He hides both guns in his satchel in the trunk and he heads toward Paris. Now, at the same time, we're getting a story about a police officer named Matei, who's played by Andre Bourville. Uh, Matei is transporting a prisoner named Vogel, who is played by uh, Jean-Maria Volonte. They're headed to Paris by train. Vogel manages to pick the lock on his handcuffs and escapes the train through a window that he kicks out. Matei pulls the emergency brake and follows him out the window. He takes a few shots at Vogel, but to no avail. Matei finds a house nearby and calls in the escape. A dragnet is set up to catch him. Corey is stopped on the highway by a police roadblock. They note that the car was purchased a few hours earlier and remind him to update the registration. They also ask him to open the trunk, and he does, and since there's nothing in there of interest, they let him go. A while later, Corey pulls into a roadside diner. Uh, Vogel, having so far escaped the dragnet, climbs into the trunk of Corey's car while he's in the diner. Corey gets into the car and drives away. When he gets back to the roadblock, he pretends that the dealer didn't give him the keys to the trunk when he purchased the car, so the police let him through. Corey drives the car out into the middle of a field and lets Vogel out for a bit. Vogel is very suspicious at first, but he's thankful for the help. Shortly after they resume their travel, the car is diverted by another pair of Rico's henchmen who don't know that Vogel is in the trunk. They divert Corey to a, wo a wooded area, and they take back the money that he took from Rico and then prepare to shoot him when Vogel gets the drop on them from behind. He takes their guns and then shoots them each with the other's gun so that it looks like they killed each other. Corey tries to retrieve the money, but it's covered in blood, so he just drops it. Vogel gets back in the trunk, and they resume their journey to Paris. 
Corey takes Vogel to his old apartment in Paris, where they begin plans for the robbery. In order to pull off the job, they need a marksman to help them disable the alarm system. They're also going to need a fence to get rid of the jewelry they'll be stealing. For the marksman, they recruit Jensen. He's an alcoholic ex-police officer, played by Yves Montand. When we first see him, he's got a bad case of the DTs, but he agrees to the job and he spends some time drying out and practicing his marksmanship skills to get them back where they were. They also get a fence, one of only a few who could do this job, to take it on. Meanwhile, Matei is still looking for Vogel and whoever killed Rico's men in the woods. He's not convinced that they killed each other because they saw an extra pair of uh, tire prints and figure there's another person involved. So he begins putting pressure on Santi. He's a local nightclub owner whose club is frequented by the underworld. Santi, who is played by Francois Pellier, uh, concedes he knows most of the underworld, but he's not talking. He's no squeal uh, squealer. So we get a very long sequence, by my count, about 27 minutes with almost no dialogue in it at all, during which Jansen, Vogel, and Corey successfully rob the jewelry store. In fact, there's one point where they cut away and it's somebody else who says something and they come back to the jewelry store. So there's nothing said during the jewelry store sequence. It's a fascinating scene to watch. I'm not going to get into excruciating detail here. Unfortunately for them, the fence was warned off by Rico not to take the goods because Rico learned by accident that Corey was involved with the job. Jansen and Vogel suggest to Corey that they ask Santi to recommend a different fence. Santi is under a lot of pressure by Matei to cooperate with him, so Santi shares the information with him about Corey meeting the fence at his club. While Corey is waiting, a girl in the club hands Corey a rose. Corey smiles and puts it away. Matei poses as the fence and asks Corey to bring the jewelry to a house out in the country. Corey and Jensen go to the country house with the jewelry while Vogel stays at the apartment. Jensen remains in the car while Corey goes inside. As Corey starts taking the jewels out of the bag, Vogel shows up suddenly. Apparently, he suspected a trap was in the making, and of course we know he was correct in that assessment. Vogel tells Corey to leave with the jewelry. Corey does so, and Vogel follows him shortly thereafter, pursued by Matei and his men. Jensen gets out of the car and tries to take them on, but one by one, the three men are shot down. Matei recognizes Jensen shortly before Jensen succumbs to his injuries. Corey is the last of the three to die, and at the end, a whole slew of police show up as Matei just walks away from the whole scene. Okay, now before we get into this movie and Melvi. I want to bring up the opening credit scroll that we see, which is something that makes this movie have something in common with the source material of a movie we discussed in an earlier episode, which was Winter Kills. The opening scroll we see is this epigraph. Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, drew a circle with a piece of red chalk and said, when men, even unknowingly, are to meet one day, whatever may befall each, whatever the diverging paths, on the said day, they will inevitably come together in the red circle. Now, what could this possibly have in common with the source material for Winter Kills? Well, just like the epigraph that was included at the beginning of the novel, Winter Kills, that saying was not by Buddha. It was, in fact, made up completely by Melvi. Why, next as, you're going to tell me that the old Arabian proverb at the beginning of King Kong is not, in fact, an old Arabian proverb. 
Well, that I don't know for sure, <laughs> but I do know that Melvi made this up. So, as much as I've talked about Godard on this show, and as much as I love his 60s movies, or really like them, from Breathless up through to Le Guy Savoir, maybe, he is not my favorite French filmmaker, at mm. least as far as consistency in their career. That honor would go to uh, a tie between Louis Malle mm. and Jean-Pierre Melvi. And the two of them could not be any more different as far as film directors go. Uh, Mal was left-wing, whereas Melvi was conservative, although not as right-wing, apparently, as some people like to portray him. He was conservative. And whereas Mal made all different kinds of movies and did not like repeating himself in general with a couple exceptions melville basically melville basically made two types of movies uh he made three world war ii movies uh la silence de la mer which was his first feature movie leon moran priest which also starred Jean-Paul Belmondo, and Army of Shadows, which is the movie he did right before Le Cirque Rouge. And all of them involve resistance movements uh, during the war. But the genre that he was most known for was the crime movie, starting with Bob LaFlambert back in 1953, I want to say, and continuing through with movies like Two Men in Manhattan, which had a rare acting role for him. Uh, 1956, excuse me, was Bob LaFlambert. Um, Le Doulos, uh, Le Magnet of Doom, although a little bit more lighthearted than they usually were, which is why, for me, it's his weakest movie. Le Deuxième Souffle, Le Samurai, which was arguably his most famous movie, and his last movie, Un Flick, or also known as A Cop. And Le Cirque Rouge is basically what I would call a film that sums up his career, even though Un Flick was his last movie to be made before he died at um, the age of 55. Um, it has a lot of his themes going on that he built up over the years, Honor Among Thieves, whether or not there was such a thing as honor among thieves, uh, the close friendships that could develop between men, especially those who are involved in criminal activity, the ways that cops and criminals were similar to each other and yet far apart, and lots of other things. And to me, 
not only is Le Cirque Rouge a summing up of his career in many ways, or possibly as the person who wrote the Criterion essay wrote, the movie that he was building towards for his entire career, I also think as much as I like many of the other movies that uh, he made before that, especially with Samurai, I believe this is Melvi's crowning achievement. How about you, Claude? Did you like this? This is a terrific film, and I really appreciated the heist scene especially. You know what it brought me back to was the old Mission Impossible show when you would have one of the characters like meticulously setting up you know, some sort of thing like where they were going to spy on somebody. And there was no dialogue there either. It was just like, you know, whoever, whoever happened to be doing it, Peter Lupus or whatever, like, and all you would hear is like just a little bit of soundtrack, like a ding, 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 ding. And if you weren't watching the screen, you had no idea what the hell was going on. And it was kind of the same thing here. Although it should be noted that in this case, you didn't even have musical soundtrack going on. It was just anything that was happening in the room you heard, but none of that was one person saying something to another person. And it was just kind of cool to watch just how well they worked and how meticulously they worked without having to say a word to each other. And it was one of those things that also paid off because they were also aware that they were not only were there cameras on everything that they were doing, but that everything was getting recorded onto that big one inch videotape that they, that they had going on in the, uh, in the, in the guards office there. And, and so when, uh, Matei like actually watches the video, you know, he recognizes, well, nobody's saying anything, so I'm not going to get anything from that. And so it was a nice little payoff to the fact that they were going through all this business. It was pretty cool. I, yes, I, I, I had a great time watching this film. Well, uh, we might as well get into the heist scene right now. Now, this was not the first heist scene that was done in complete silence. Um, John Huston's The Asphalt Jungle, which is arguably the first heist movie ever made, at least the first A movie that was a heist movie that was ever made. There might have been some B movies uh, after World War II that were considered heist movies, but I think this that was basically it. That heist scene was done in silence as well, though not for the same length of time. <laughs> and um, Rafifi, directed by Jules Dessine, which came out in 55, uh, that high scene was also done in silence. As a matter of fact, I'm not entirely sure about this, but I believe that um, in pointed contrast to the cool uh, precision of those two high scenes and the silence in them, that the heist scene that is the climax of Big Deal on Madonna Street, the great Mario Monticelli film, uh, which is a comic heist movie about a few folks who 
are not professional crooks, but uh, somewhat losers. Uh, the reason why you can tell that this high scene is going to go wrong is because there's so much sound done because they don't know how to do it in silence. And um, and uh, I would think that Monticelli was thinking of something like Rafifi when he made that movie. But Melvi claimed that he had gotten the idea for uh, doing a heist scene way back in 1950, but after he saw Asphalt Jungle and then Rafifi, he decided to put it on the back burner. So there had been heist heist scenes in movies that were silent like that before, and even before this movie, Melville used silence in his movies very well. That was a trademark of his. Even though Un Flick, the last film he did, and which was made after this, um, I thought was somewhat of a come down. It is still a pretty good film. And there's a scene in that where Delon, who in Unflick plays a cop, the only time working with Melvi that he actually played a cop, um, goes to a bar and starts playing the piano. And then Catherine Deneuve, who plays a prostitute, and Richard Crenna, who plays... Um, the leader of a gang, sort of like Neil McCauley in Heat, uh, and he also owns the club, also come in. And without a word of dialogue, uh, Melville is able to communicate just with camera angles and gestures on the actor's part that Krenna and Delon are friends and that both of them are sleeping with Deneuve. Deneuve, of course, knows it, and Krenna knows it, but Delon doesn't. Uh-huh. And so he is really good at using silence. Yeah. And obviously the heist scene, which, as you said, is ends up being 27 minutes, is um, the most prominent example of his use of silence, but it's it's also so well done, and it doesn't feel like an affectation at all. No, it doesn't. It's let just me, but let, let rational. Me, yeah, let me and but let me bring up one other like lengthy high scene, which does not predate this one. It goes to 1971 and a film called um, Burglars, The Burglars. Okay, which starts with a silent sequence is like the, there's no dialogue whatsoever for the first 10 minutes of this film as the four people who were involved in this burglary come together and they get into a car and they drive down the road to this remote house and they break into the house and they tie up the guy the owner of the house and they break into his his um his his safe and steal a bunch of emeralds and i think during the heist itself you might hear like an individual word or two. But again, there's like about 10 minutes where there's no dialogue at all. And then several minutes beyond that, where there's still no dialogue until finally, uh, this police character played by Omar uh, Sharif comes along and 
he senses that something might not be quite right with the house and one of the burglars has to cover up why the car is out there in front of the house and 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 it's it's not an awesome film really but it, that particular scene was kind of fun to watch so again it kind of pulled you in you know it just had like a little bit of a disappointing payoff later on but but okay. but similarly as, you know i i think you could easily call this like a kind of homage to what went before and as it happens, Jean-Paul Belmondo was in that movie. Yes, he as was. Well. Yes, he was. So um, now, what was I going to say? Oh yes. Um, now Belmondo was also originally supposed to be in this movie. Hmm. Um, also, he was going to play the part of, or at least that's who. Um, yeah, he was going to play the part of Vogel, and hmm, okay. um, the uh, part of uh, Captain Matei was originally offered to Lino Ventura, who had worked with Melvi in um, Leduzium Souffle and in Army of Shadows. Belmondo had also worked with... Um, Melvi and Leon Moran Priest, Ladulos and Magnet of Doom. And the part of Jansen was offered originally to Paul Maruse, who had worked with Melvi in Leduzium Souffle and also in Army of Shadows. And you also might know him from diabolique where he played the uh unlikable headmaster of the school and i'm not sure why marusa turned it down uh there might have been scheduling conflicts uh ventura turned it down because he and melvi did not get along uh, because of a stunt that he had to do during the making of Leduzium Souffle that he was not aware was going to be as dangerous as it turned out to be. And Belmondo, as I mentioned, was an actor who liked to improvise, and that was not Mel V's shooting style at all. So I would guess that's why he decided to turn it down. But let's talk about the three actors who took over for those roles. Let's do. Now, Gianmaria Volante, we talked about when we talked about A Fistful of Dollars. He was an actor who was very committed politically. He had done a lot of politically oriented He did a lot of politically oriented movies in Italy including a movie called The Matei Affair, which has nothing to do with the character of the police inspector, although maybe Melvi decided to name him that because of the real Matei, I don't know, and also Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion. And 
he was someone who did not get along with Mel V during the making of this because he didn't like Mel V's politics. He didn't like Mel V's shooting style. Although years later, after Mel V had died, Volante did admit that he thought that Mel V was a good director and that he had made a good movie. And this is not the type of role that I usually associated with Volante, you know, whether he's playing a good guy or a bad guy, he's playing someone who is very passionate, as I said, similarly to what he was in real life. Um, he's much more subdued in this movie even though he does do impulsive things like his escape from the train. But I think Volante does a very good job. I mean, he does plan out what he's going to do in escaping from the train. I'm but, guessing you caught my face on that one. <laughs> yes. But, you know, it's not like something that, you know, it's something he had to... Um, Something he had to decide on, you know, this is it. He didn't pick like, okay, this is the spot where I'm going to do it. You know, it's just that circumstances allowed him to do it at this particular time. And he's also, but he is at the same time more thoughtful than the characters he would play in other things with, although the characters he played in other things did display a lot of intelligence, you know, not in the same way that he does in this movie being, for example, the one who realizes that the whole thing with the fence at the end is a trap. Mm -hmm. And I think Volante does a really good job in this movie. He, he does. And I'm, and I'm still going to disagree as far as like, you know, picking, he had to, he, he had to time it just so he had to leave the train at a certain time. If he was going to make his way across the field and whatever else and get to the diner where Corey was, he didn't jump into that car by happenstance. That was really all part of the broader plan. So, and, and he, as it was, but like, it was he got, but the thing but, is he got locked up in the, in, he got the handcuffed to the bed. Okay. He's up there. He had like a paper clip or whatever in his pocket. He's meticulously bending it. He had a long time to figure this out, undo the thing and, and get himself out of the handcuffs and wait for the appropriate time to crack the window and jump out. So even at that, I mean, this whole film is very meticulously paced. And, and, and so similarly, you know, you can see that this is a guy who is taking his time and waiting so that he is ready when the time comes for him to do whatever he's going to do. Yes, but Corey's car, the fact that it was someone sympathetic to him, that is a coincidence. You know, it's not like they knew each other before. Well, the thing I kind of got the feeling, and maybe I'm wrong in this in this respect, that that basically it was part of the plan, like what he was going to do. It wasn't just a matter of, you know, we're going to knock over this jewelry store. It's like you're going to do it with this guy, okay? And so, um, it was really just part of a bigger thing that these two stories came together. Like he was going to get out, and he was going to go and move these guns at that time. Because, because he was going to pick up, uh, uh, um, um, Vogel, 
okay, and smuggle him into the into Paris. I think I think that was really part of the bigger picture. You, I could be wrong, and you are muted right now. So, <laughs> I I didn't get that, but okay. Now, um, as far as um, Montand goes, mm-hmm. um, as we mentioned when we talked about state of siege, Montand at this point also was politically to the left, unlike Melvi. But Melvi enjoyed working with him because he said that Montand was a true professional, Mm -hmm. which is the highest uh, compliment that he could pay to anybody, and that he actually had hoped he would be able to work with him again. Uh, Sadly, of course, that never came to pass because Melvi only made one other movie after this. But Montan works very well in that part, and especially in the two, two sequences, one where he's has the DTs. Oh my God, he was so good there. <laughs> that is considered in a lot of circles one of the most, if not the most, realistic depictions of having the DTs that's ever been put on film. And Melville or Montand usually doesn't show emotion like that on screen. Mm-hmm. But he oh my God, you just feel totally sorry for him. Oh you're 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 in his terror with that one. Yeah. Because because yeah. it starts, I think, with the spiders and then it yes. moves on to the, the lizards and the snakes and then the rats are all over the bed. You're like, oh my God, this is horrible. And then as we mentioned when we talked about the killer, the scene where Chalian Fat is shooting from someone um, from a boat, that was John Woo's homage to Jansen shooting out the lock mm-hmm. during the heist scene. And in that scene, you know, when he's totally opposite from the DTs. He's completely calm and professional here. You know, that's a very good piece of acting as well. Yeah, especially in as much as when he puts the rifle on the tripod and then he starts looking through the scope to to line up the shot. And then he's like, the hell with it. And he takes it off the tripod and he lines it up by hand um, and, and takes the shot and still manages to hit it perfectly. Right. Now... The character of the police inspector in Melvi's movies has, with the exception of Unflick, been the one character where he seems to allow the actor to give uh, more of an over-the-top performance. The classic example for me is Paul Maurice in Le Deuxième Souffle. But Francois Perrier, who here plays a nightclub owner, also played a policeman who gives a more over-the-top performance in Le Samurai. And the policeman characters in Bob Le Flambeur and Le Doulos also are a little bit more over the top. And that's appropriate uh, 
for Borville's casting. Now, uh, we mentioned this in passing when we were talking about Roma, but Borville was mostly known in France at the time as a comic actor. And Melvi even admitted in an interview he gave when this movie came, after this movie came out, that Borville is not an actor that you might not might immediately associate with him. But at the same time, because he's so different, he surprises you in the role um, from his or human tendencies, you know, the fact that he has all these cats at home that he treats lovingly to his more ruthless tendencies that he shows in the movie, particularly when he's showing, when he's pretending to be the fence and also forcing Perrier's character to cooperate with him through the use of Perrier's son when he gets in trouble, although he might blanch a little at how far the, his um, superior officer wants to go and catching all these crooks saying that, you know, all men, all crooks are bad. Um, he yeah, it was like does, all men have evil in them. And yeah, yes, he does really lean into the more ruthless aspects of the character. And he's, you wouldn't know that he was a comic actor uh, if this was the only movie of his that you ever saw, man. No, you wouldn't. And the other thing I like about his his performance is early in the film, he's he's rather a quiet guy in, in just in general. You know, he doesn't raise his voice. He speaks, you know, pretty pretty naturally, even when he's kind of excited about something, when he's trying to make his argument to the uh, inspector general. Um, and, and then when you get later into the film and you get to the point where he is basically threatening Santi with, you know, you're just basically blackmailing him and tell you, Hey, look, you're going to tell me because of your son and blah, 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 blah. He actually starts to raise his voice a little bit. So now you're actually paying attention because this is like something that he is very passionate about and he is going to get this guy, damn it. And you're going to help me, damn it. And that's the way it's going to be. And, and, because he gets a little bit louder and a little bit more intense, you tend to sit up and pay a little bit more attention to him as well, because there aren't too many characters in this film who get that way. You know, Corey, for instance, is a very, very even tempered character throughout the film. Like you have, he's wearing a mask, especially in the early parts of that film. You have no idea what's on this boy's mind. Well, Part of that is also Delon's acting style. No, I get that. You know, yeah. he is not. I mean, I like the movie, the performances he's given in Melville films, particularly the Samurai, mm-hmm. which, as I mentioned, Perrier is also involved in. And although I am giving away part of my film cred here when I say this, I like Talented Mr. Ripley more than I like the first version of that movie, Purple Noon. I do like Delon in that and also in The Leopard, even though you can't really get a sense of his performance in that one because he's dubbed in Italian. Mm -hmm. But 
he's not the world's most expressive actor in the first place. No, he's not. But my point being is is like when when you get these moments when a character escalates a little bit, because so many of the characters are very low key. So when you get somebody escalating, it's suddenly a thing. And, you know, as far as talented Mr. Ripley, you know what, Sean? Even Julia Child enjoyed the occasional Big Mac. So don't worry about it too deeply. Okay. But anyway, the low key part is also shown in technical terms mm-hmm. um, as far as the way Mel V shoots it. You know, unlike Breathless, which announces its style, you know, as it, the movie goes along, this is done in a very controlled way. Mm-hmm. And that also comes through with the use of color. Um Bellevue shot this with Henri Duquet as his cinematographer, and they worked together on, I think, most, if not all, of his color movies. He also worked with Louis Malle on Elevator to the Gallows and Truffaut on his first movie, The 400 Blows. And what Bellevue and Duquet were trying to do, basically was shoot a color movie as if it was a black and white movie. And we talked about that when we talked about The Godfather, the fact that um, American cinematographer is one of the reasons why they liked um, European films was they liked the fact that they didn't use a lot of garish colors in them. And I'm wrong that about Dukai shooting all of uh, Melvi's color movies. They did shoot together um, Liam Moran Priest, which was in, and Bob Laflambeur, which were both in black and white. But they also did together Magnet of Doom, which is the only color movie that Mel V made that had really bright colors. And it's one of the reasons why it is my least favorite Mel V movie that I've seen. And I've Hmm. seen all of them except for when you read this letter. And why... I prefer the movies where he started making um, color films in black and white, noticeably the samurai army of shadows and this, where again, the colors are very muted and the costume design throughout the movie reflects that as well. And the costume designer on this movie is not credited here but it's uh you know like i said everyone is dressed in blue or gray oh um colette badeau is credited with the wardrobe wardrobe department Mm -hmm. Um, but everyone is dressed in uh, blue or gray or something like that. And that helps contribute to the tone of the movie as well. Right. I think the only times you get like really popping colors are the billiard room because the, well, the chalk on the, on the, on the billiard cue, which you see briefly is bright red 
instead of blue. And the balls that they're playing with as well. Uh, yeah. And then, well, but the, the, the felt is red and on, on the tables. And then you've got the bright red on the money when, when uh, the, the, the two henchmen are shot up. And then you've got the rose. Okay, again, red, 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 all the way through. And the only exception I can think of where the colors really suddenly come out, other than a, a muted color, is actually the scenes with Corey's ex-girlfriend, who is nude in the bedroom. This was kind of unnecessary, too. I was like, I don't really get why she had to be there at all. You know what I'm saying? There, like, like, maybe there was a subplot that got cut or something. I don't know because like he didn't really need the photos. You didn't need the naked girl in the room. You know, not that I don't appreciate a nice naked girl now and then, but I just didn't really get the point of her being there. So, and, and so that didn't seem especially necessary, but the fact is, again, you've got a fairly dark space going on. And then this girl who has no clothes on whatsoever. So she kind of stands out against the rest of the scene. Well, there is a hint you know, that this is Cora's ex-girlfriend and maybe he's thinking about going back to her. But when he realizes that she's with someone else, he decides and not, which leads to the uh, which what I was going to bring to next. While Melvi was not known for making movies about women. Uh, the only two movies that he, I take that back, the only three movies that he made where women were playing leading characters were La Silence de la Mer, um, where the main character is a woman and her father and the uh, German uh, Nazi uh soldier who sort of takes over their home for a while. Um, Les Enfants Terribles, where it's a woman with her brother and the guy who's in love with her. And Liam Moran Priest, where Emmanuel Riva is playing the main character, even though the movie is titled after... Um, Jean Belmondo's character, who is Leon Moran Priest. Um, mostly in Melville movies, women were supporting characters. And even so, they were pretty important to the plot. Um, certainly the woman in um, Bob Laflambeur and Le Duzium Souffle and Le Samurai and Army of Shadows, where the woman's part is played by Montan's wife, Simone Signoret. Even though they are supporting roles, they're all important to the story. And Catherine Deneuve's part in Un Flick, even though she's a supporting role, is also important to that story. This is the one Melvie movie where there's hardly any woman, except for the ex-girlfriend who only appears briefly, and the waitress who brings uh, Corey the Rose, and the yeah. woman dancers that we see in the nightclub at one point. Right, but those uh, are like those are like the the dancing girls in in the Sopranos. They're just wallpaper. You know, well, yeah. Uh, but yeah, but uh, Mireille Dark is the uh, the girl who hands Corey the flower, 
which is kind of interesting because when we see the um, the registration on the card on for the car, which only says Corey, by the way, there's no first or last name. So we still don't know whether it's Corey's first or last name. Um, the address that's on the card was, in fact, Murray Dark's actual address. Right. I remember that. And <laughs> the important relationship in this movie, obviously, is between Corey and Vogel. Mm-hmm. And maybe Melville didn't want to distract from that from any way. I don't know. But as much as I love this movie, I admit it is a shame that he didn't really couldn't really find room for any major woman character in the movie, even if she would be as in um, Le Deuxième Souffle or Bob Flambeau, the girlfriend character. Um, in both of those movies, he ended up making that character a little more interesting than we'd usually see. So I'm sure he would have found something a little more interesting in, the, in the, this, but again, it was not to be. Yeah, and then can I also bring up, there's like one other little kind of subplot that I wasn't 100% sure was necessary for this film was the bit about the um, the chief of police and and Matei, like basically like the chief kind of, it looked like he was like actually starting to do a little bit of an investigation into Matei to see if maybe he had something kind of under his fingernails and what was going on there and maybe... The only reason he was there was to kind of put that little button on the end of the film when he says his bit about it. See, everybody's evil. But I don't, I don't really understand the necessity of that either, frankly. Well, I think that's, you know, how could you let him escape like that? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's where it was coming from. Right. And, and but, you know, we've had plenty of films where like a cop screws up and they say, you know, hey, blah, blah, blah. And this is your last chance or whatever else. But it doesn't turn into this weird. OK, let's see what else he's got going on, you know, because because of this particular chief of police, um, you know, believing that everybody is somehow evil. So let's go find out how Matei is evil. I, I just, again, didn't feel completely necessary. Wow, it didn't bother me. I mean, I can under, I it wouldn't have diminished the movie if it had been left out, but it didn't bother me, and I do think it fits in with the overall theme of the movie. Yeah. So, um, one cast member you I don't think you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, the guy who played the fence, correct? I did is not. Uh, Paul Crochet. And he was also in Army of Shadows. So Melvi's uh, other tie to Godard is that he liked to use a lot of the same actors over and over again, even if he was nowhere near as prolific as Godard. He did have his own preferred stock company of actors. And as I said, had he lived to make more movies Montand might have been included in that stock company because Melville, as I said, enjoyed working with them. So mm-hmm. who knows? So do you have anything else that you want to add before we wrap this up? No, I think we've about exhausted this. We're just getting into we're, we're we are getting into Le Cirque Rouge length for this episode. Now. <laughs> well, 
I will say one more thing. It's always surprising to me when a filmmaker likes the film that at first glance would be of completely differing sensibilities to his. Mm -hmm. You know, it shouldn't since I've been into movies for so long, but you know, I was very surprised, for example, to find out that Robert Altman was a big fan of Frank Capra movies and because, you know, again, two different sensibilities. <laughs> I couldn't find at all two more different sensibilities. And similarly speaking, um, I don't know if you're familiar, Claude, with mm -hmm. the films of the Darden brothers, uh, movies like uh, The Sun, L'Enfant, The Kid with the Bike. Uh, they're Belgian filmmakers, mm -hmm. and they basically make neorealistic movies. And yet, apparently... This movie is the favorite movie of Jean-Pierre Dardenne, right? and also a favorite, a favorite film of a Finnish filmmaker who makes these really quirky comedies, uh, Aki Karizmaki, uh, whose best-known film is Leningrad Cowboys uh, Go America. Um, so it's not just the folks like Jim Jarmusch and John Wu, who you would expect to be Melville fans, given the types of movies they make, who are big fans of Melville. It's also completely different filmmakers. So make of that what you will. Okay. Now, before we punch out on this particular episode, let me ask you this. I, I borrowed the, uh, Criterion edition from my local library and I'm, can practically guarantee betting all the money in my pockets that you have a copy of the Criterion Edition. So yes. there are two discs. So is there yes. anything especially good on the second disc? Um, well, the second disc just has, um, you know, interviews mm -hmm. uh, with people. Um, don't remember exactly anything that was particularly noteworthy, although I'm looking at the special features that come up here. Um, you know, there was an interview, there were interviews with the, um, guy who wrote a book on Melvi. Um, Melvi on Melvi, uh, Rui Nogueira, and I think they have some nice insights into Melvi. Uh, but you know, I don't remember. And then there's archival interviews, but I don't remember anything particularly except the Noriega Nogueira interview, excuse me, that stuck out to me. Okay, this is a short-term borrow, so I just wanted to see if I had to like squeeze anything in before I returned it. So. Okay, so this is now the part where we tell you that breath, in addition to Breathless and Le Cirque Rouge, both being available on Criterion DVD and Blu-ray, I believe, as well. Uh, but if you prefer to watch them streaming... You can stream Breathless on HBO Max, 
HBO Max if you get it through Amazon, the Criterion Channel, and Canopy if you're lucky enough to have a library that subscribes to that. And you could rent or buy it through Amazon, Apple TV, Google, Voodoo, and YouTube. Whereas with Le Cirque Rouge, you can at this time only rent it through Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, or YouTube. So I would check your local library for that movie. As I did. <laughs> okay. And coming up in our next episode, we're going to Germany. Yeah. And we are going to talk about movies that look at their um, checkered history and some uh, Germany's checkered history in some way. And it's going to be from the year 2006, The Lives of Others, written and directed by Florian Henkel von Donnersmark. And from 2008, The Bonner Meinhof Complex, which was directed by Yuli Edel. Both of these movies are available on regular DVD. Uh, but again, if you prefer to watch them online, you can rent The Lives of Others through Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, and most of the other uh, streaming services. As for the Bader Meinhof Complex, you can stream that for free through a streaming service called Plex, or you could rent or buy it um, exclusively through Amazon, Google Play, or YouTube. And uh, as far as our page goes, we have our own page. And if you uh, have a question or comment, you can email us through wordsandmoviespod at gmail.com or feel free to visit our Facebook page, uh, which is under Words and Movies. Although... They're doing something to those types of Facebook pages. I'm not sure what. We will have details on that when we learn them. And you can find me, Sean Gallagher, on Facebook. And uh, I also still work on Instagram. And how about you, Claude? Well, yes, you can find me on the Book of Face still under my own name, Claude Call. And you can also check out my other podcast, how good it is at howgooditis.com. Okay. And are we still on Twitter or? Yes, so far we are. So far we're still on Twitter. Okay. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll see you next time. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Please take us away. Bonsoir, everyone. This is your announcer, Rebecca Blackman, with the closing credits. This show was produced by Sean Gallagher and Claude Call with editing and post-production by Claude, with some help from Ophonic. Audio clips are used under fair use rules for commentary and educational framing. Everything else is copyrighted by Claude Call and Sean Gallagher. The theme music you're bopping along to right now is by Solar Flare, and is used under a Creative Commons license. Podcast hosting is provided by Anchor.fm. If you want to support the show, go to anchor.fm slash wordsandmovies and click on the support link. Who knows, maybe they'll even kick a few bucks my way. Thanks for listening. <laughs>